Today, we've come into his presence where he welcomes us. He receives us. He opens his arms and just says, come, come to me. So as we have worshipped him in song, we've worshipped him in, in giving, we've worshipped him by prayer, and now we're going to worship him by offering him an open heart, a listening ear to allow the Holy Spirit to minister to our hearts today. So as we do that, I invite you to bow your heads with me once more as we, as we pray. Father in heaven, you are a great God, but how humbled we are that you are gentle and approachable. You're a God who wants to be known. You you want to be found. You want to be heard. And so we ask, Lord, that you would tune our ears with the presence that touch the Holy Spirit so we can truly hear a message that comes from you today. Speak, Lord, for thy servants to listen. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to tell you a little bit about my family, as the Apostle Paul would call it in his epistle to the Galatians, I want to tell you about my household of faith. You see, I have several relatives, brothers and sisters, related by a shared faith. As Peter would say, a like precious faith. You see... I'm of the same family with more than 2.5 million in South America. Over 3.7 million are spread throughout Central America. Over 1.2 million in North America. Over 10 million are Africans. Half a million are Europeans. Another half million live in the islands of the South Pacific And over 3 million live in Asia. Pretty big family, isn't it? You know, there's a chorus often sung at social gatherings, and it's been sung in just about every type of Christian gathering since 1970. And that's the song written by William Gaither, which says, I'm so glad I'm a part of who? Of the family of God. You know that song. I've been washed in the fountain, cleansed by his blood, joined heirs with Jesus as we travel this sod. I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. Is your heart glad today? Do you you sense that, that privilege to know that you are not alone in a journey. And I, I'm fully convinced about this. Fully convinced. I believe there's no greater way to journey in these last days here on earth than doing it together with the household of faith. Brothers and sisters who together with me have a prayer, and that is to endure until the end. Together, as survivors of the great controversy. I genuinely genuinely love reading the messages of the final book in the New Testament called Revelation. I, I, I truly... My heart is thrilled when I open its pages and read these messages that that just take me into the heart of God. After all, it's a revelation of of who? Of Jesus Christ. It's right there in chapter 1, verse 1. It's a revelation of Jesus Christ, who is called the Lamb. 28 times in the book of Revelation. Did you know that? There's only 22 chapters. And Jesus is called the Lamb 28 times. You know what that tells me? 
that tells me that unquestionably he is the focus of revelation. He, he's the focus. He's, he's the central figure. That's right. Think about it. There's a gentle, innocent lamb. That word picture is often used in nurseries. The word picture is often used when you're trying to get your six-month-old baby to just calm down and, and be able to fall asleep. We show them pictures of a lamb. We make even the sounds of a lamb. Bah, bah, go to sleep, bah. <laughs> we can't think of a more gentle picture than a lamb. But what is, 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 is very intriguing <laughs> is that we see a lamb in the mist of hail and fireballs, burning mountains, falling stars, pitch black darkness, and terrifying plagues. That's, that's the, the, the backdrop of the lamb. <laughs> and all these images tend to, to arrest our attention. That's why the book of Revelation is such a, an exciting uh, book that just appeals to many people. It's a book with these images that, that make Hollywood seem a little lame. I mean, these are, these are amazing images found in the book of Revelation. And we tend to, to focus on those images. It, yeah, well, they, they are pretty captivating. They arrest our attention when reading through the apocalyptic prophecies. And, and oftentimes, though, and, and I've, I've seen this time and time again, a new believer or someone who's not very familiar with the scriptures, they, they begin reading the book of Revelation. And what happens? They tell me, Pastor, I'm a little anxious. Maybe a little afraid. And I get it. These images, they incite fear and anxiety, causing us to, to lose sight of Him whom the Lamb represents. It was John the Baptist who pointed to Jesus. He pointed to Jesus and he identified him, first one to do so, he identified him as the Lamb of God. The who? Lamb. The Lamb of God. The Lamb of God. Central Figure in the book of Revelation, John the Baptist points to Jesus and identifies him as the one who takes away the sin of the world. And now, and by now I mean like right now in our lifetime, millenniums later, every nation, tribe, tongue, and people must still be pointed to Jesus who is Revelation's beginning and end. Can you say amen to that? The necessity has not changed. Today, as it were in ancient times, men and women still need to be pointed to Jesus. He must be, we must be pointed to Jesus as Revelation's all-powerful creator. He's the one. He's Revelation's righteous judge. It's Jesus He's Revelation's coming king. It's Jesus. We must be pointed to Jesus, who is Revelation's triumphant conqueror. Jesus, the Lamb, is the central focus of Revelation. And you know what I've concluded? That when Jesus, the Lamb, Jesus, the Lamb, is revealed, Revelation's apocalyptic content will give hope and not the spirit of fear. When Jesus is revealed, the Lamb will give hope to the troubled heart. But contrary to popular opinion, when we open the book of Revelation, the images that pop out are images that terrify people. 
The main character of the book of Revelation, again, unlike popular opinion, is not a violent, raging, threatening monster. It's not some great giant whore sitting on an enormous bright red beast. It's not freaky locusts and creatures with multiple heads and, and a revelation of the infamous mark of the beast. You've seen all these images. Now, although all these images and more are there, yes, yes, they are depicted in the book of Revelation. There's no doubt about that. They're not the central focus, but they're there. There is something that John saw in vision that caused him, in the words of the New King James Version, to marvel with great amazement. To marvel. That means to be spellbound, to just be speechless. When you marvel at something, your eyes are just glazed over. You can't believe what you're saying. That appears to be John's experience. What did he see? <laughs> that he was so, so caught by wonder and, and awe. Come with me to Revelation. We'll find out. Revelation chapter 17. Revelation chapter 17. And no, in case you're guessing or wondering, it's not the Lamb. John testifies that he was caught off guard. He marveled at what he saw with great amazement, and it was not the Lamb. No, it's not the Lamb. Revelation chapter 17, the New Living Translation renders Revelation chapter 17, verse 6, the last phrase of verse 6, as I stared in complete amazement. That's, that's, that's language that I can re- relate to a little more. I, he stared with great amazement. For those who are parents, you know what you've done time and time again. I have to confess, my mom did it to me often. Christian, stop staring. Stop staring. <laughs> but in Spanish, language I would understand a little bit more seriously. Don't stare. When I was caught staring, it was often because I couldn't believe my eyes. Isn't that your case? I mean, isn't that when you're caught staring? You're like, you're like, are you serious? Is that what I think I'm seeing? You know, I, I, have, to, I, have, to, I have to conclude that that's what John is trying to convey here. He couldn't believe what he was seeing. What is his attention captivated by? I'll tell you. By the fact that there is a woman sitting on a beast who is full of names of blasphemy. A woman sitting on a beast with names, with full of names of blasphemy. Now you might wonder, okay, I mean that is pretty intense, but, but is that what captivated John and and it was so, he was so arrested by what he saw. Is that it? So what, you might ask? Well, let me explain. Oh, yeah, there's more to it. What baffles John in this, in this context is that he knows, he knows that a woman symbolizes what? A church. Your Bible students, you know Bible students and prophecy know that the book of Revelation is full of symbols and, and it borrows from, from the Old Testament and Scripture and the Bible interprets itself. And the, the woman in Bible prophecy symbolizes a church. Now, now you're starting to relate to John a little bit more. You see, what John sees, what John sees is a woman who symbolizes a church, yet he sees her sitting on the lap of the great deceiver, Satan himself. This is scandalous. Scandalous. And John, I marveled with great amazement. I'm with you, John. I'm with you. I would be staring too. According to to verses 3 to 6, 
We see what he saw. Let's read together. Revelation chapter 17, verses 3 to 6. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of what? Abominations, right there, it's in your Bible. Full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. And on her forehead, a name was given. Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and the blood of martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled with great amaze. Met. According to verse 4, the church, let's just cut to the chase, that's who she represents. Uh, the church holds in her hand a golden cup. Why a golden cup? I came across an old fable from South India of how farmers would trap monkeys. Yeah, I probably heard this before. Kids are going to like this story. It's called the, the old South African, or South Indian rather, monkey trap. And it was quite clever. This is how it worked. Um, their trap was nothing more than a coconut hollowed out from one end and, and chained to a stake in the ground. And so they would cook up some rice, and, and they would take the cooked rice and sprinkle it around that coconut... And then they would put a large handful of coconut inside, or rice rather, inside the coconut, <laughs> which the monkey is always happy to take. Oh, monkeys love, love rice. And knowing this, the farmers then would simply cut a hole in the coconut just large enough so that the monkey would, would, would see the rice inside and he would stick his hand inside and take a hold of that rice. So the monkey would do that, and, and, and then he would start to withdraw it. But this, he cannot do. Why? Because his fist is now larger than the hole, and the monkey will pull and tag and screech and, and fight the coconut for hours, trying to get his hand out. But he can't get it out. Why? Because he's holding on. He's holding on to what he wants. What he does not want to let go of. Hmm. And he can't get free. Unless he gives up the rice. Which of course he refuses to do. And meanwhile, what do the farmers do? They sneak up and they nab him. They get him. They catch him. Now, back to Revelation 17. The woman, uh, yes, you're right. It's no translation. <laughs> the woman doesn't have coconuts full of rice. It's not, it's not in the original text. But she has that golden cup that's full of abominations. What's the moral of the story? Evidently, there's an attempt to entice mankind. To, to, to be appealing to mankind. To catch the eye of mankind. You've walked down those jewelry stores where your eyes are captivated by the glittering gold. Gold has some kind of power to just really get our attention. There's no ex this, this is not an exception. An attempt to entice and trap them. But not by anything physical. There's no attempt to, to trap mankind literally or physically, but rather trapped by a false ideology. What I've discovered over the years is that the difficulty for many longtime Christians is not in receiving new light. Longtime Christians are very bright individuals. 
They're very sincere in many ways. They, they seek to understand. They want to learn. They want to be able to know the Word of God and what the Bible says. The experience of receiving new light in a clear and understandable way is actually not the difficulty. The difficulty is in escaping from the old traditions and assumptions that they have held on for to for a long time. It's hard to let go when you have believed something your entire life. It's, it's intimidating. It's, 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 it's scary. To just let go something that your parents taught, your grandparents taught, your great-grandparents believed, something that's been passed on from one Christian generation to the other. Come on, are you kidding me? It's scary to let go. To let go something that you've believed your entire life. So that's what the contents do. And, and so what are the contents of this attractive golden cup? Back to Revelation 17. What is the cup full of? It's in the text. It's full of abominations and lies. Wow, what, 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 what contrast to, to the outward appearance and to what's actually contained inside. You got the golden cup. And then you have it's full of filthiness, abominations, and lies. Revelation itself has something to say about abominations and lies. And it's quite serious. It's in Revelation chapter 21. You can turn a few chapters over. And in Revelation chapter 21, uh, we find uh, in verse 27 that, that John wrote what he heard. And he wrote it for us to read today. He said, but there shall by no means enter the kingdom of God, the new Jerusalem, anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. In other words, an abomination, a lie, will prevent anyone, anybody from entering into the kingdom. So let's Let's define abomination in simple terms. Terms. We could simply say an abomination is a thing or practice that is opposed to God and will keep anyone from entering into the eternal kingdom of God. That is what the biblical straightforward definition is of an abomination. In addition to an abomination, John also mentions, did you catch that? A lie. A lie can also keep anyone from entering into the eternal kingdom of God. And one of Satan's strategies that he's perfected, he, he does this well, is he, he creates, in order for a lie to be effective, he creates counterfeits. Oh, he's, 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 he's a master at counterfeits. And no surprise, Jesus himself calls him the father of lies. There is no truth in him. But that doesn't mean that he won't look like truth in order to entice and then enslave us and trap us. He uses counterfeits. And always keep this in mind. This would be, this would be a perspective that, that could truly lead you in the right direction and not be deceived. Did you know that every truth found in the word of God for every true biblical teaching with no exception there is a counterfeit make that a study make that a study and you'll discover and you'll be amazed that sure enough sure enough when Jesus speaks the truth Satan pulls off some counterfeit for the purpose of confusion, for the purpose of leading to deception. And so what do we find here? That there is no exception. But it's not necessarily the other way around. What do I mean by that? Some people even fall for counterfeits of things that don't even exist. Did you know that? 
you don't believe me, I'm going to give you an example. This took place a few months ago, in April of 2021, our lifetime. A representative of Dollar General in Maryville, Tennessee, reported that at 10.24 a.m., the two women tried to buy several gift cards with a counterfeit $1 million bill. Mm -hmm. One of the women said she assumed it was real. But it gets, the story gets better, or more sad, I should say. (laughs) She assumed it was real because... She received the $1 million bill in the mail from a local church. And so both women, long story short, they were given a warning and released without charges. Bless their hearts. While this would appear too foolish to be true. Let's not be so quick to think that it could never happen to me. It could never happen to, 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 to you know, my well-educated neighbor. It could never happen to just the majority, could it? The reality that ought to alarm us. If this doesn't, then we have to search our hearts Because it ought to alarm us that professed preachers and Christian churches are passing out, as it were, counterfeit teachings of false doctrines to to many, men and women alike, who assume that it's true doctrine. Why? Because the preacher said so. My preacher said it. My preacher taught this. My preacher preacher wrote about this. Therefore, it's got to be true. It's got to be true. The sadness, though, is that some teachings don't even exist in the Bible. And Paul warned us about this long time ago. You would think that if we were if we were given a warning that, that we would just take it to heart and, and allow it to protect us, but, but no, not in this case. And Paul warned us millenniums ago, over millenniums ago, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul warns us about false apostles, deceitful Bible workers, transforming themselves into apostles of light. If you've never read this before, Let's go to it because you better, you better know what's behind the scenes. Second Corinthians uh, chapter 11. Let's go to Second Corinthians chapter 11, uh, verses 14 to 15. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 14 and 15. Yes, we, we have false apostles, deceitful workers. Then he goes on to say, and no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. The context is Satan. Therefore, it is no great thing if his, pointing to Satan, his ministers. Satan's ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their work. Did you know that the book of Revelation exposes several counterfeits? If you read, if you read its messages carefully, the book of Revelation actually introduces the counterfeits that Satan himself will use in the last days. I'm going to mention a few and see if you've noticed them before. Whereas... God the Father is the Most High and is called the Father of Lights. The counterfeit Satan, the dragon, wants to be the Most High and is called the Father of Lies. Whereas Christ was wounded for our transgressions, 
yet resurrected, the counterfeit receives a deadly wound that is healed. Hmm. Whereas Christ ministers on earth three and a half literal years, the counterfeit has authority for three and a half years or 1260 prophetic days. Whereas the true church was the true Christ was God on earth, the counterfeit or antichrist claims to be God on earth. Hmm, let's continue. Whereas God, the Holy Spirit, comes down like fire at Pentecost, the counterfeit has an ungodly Pentecost when fire comes down from heaven in the sight of men. Have mercy. And whereas the Holy Spirit is another comforter or like the Lamb and speaks as God and for God, the counterfeit is another beast who is like a lamb and speaks like a dragon. And, and, and there's, there's others that we could actually take note of that reveal that there is no mistake about it. Satan is on a mission. And that is to introduce counterfeits and deceptions for the purpose of causing us to detour from the path that we're on. A path that will lead to greater deception. Enter the great controversy. See, the great controversy, what comes to mind when you think of it? It's not a contest of supernatural strength or power. It's not, it's not a showdown of brute strength between two powers or two entities. Don't, don't, don't think that's where it's at. It's not, because we're, we're dealing with the creator God and a created, fallen, rebellious angel. So the contest is, there's, it's no match. It's no match. So what is the great controversy focused on? It's a battle. It is a battle, a controversy, between truth and deception. That's where it's at. And the battlefield is your mind. That's where the battlefield is. Returning to Revelation chapter 17's prostitute, um, let's go back to Revelation chapter 17. We find that this unfaithful church has adulterated with strange doctrines. She, she's cre- committed fornication, the Bible says, to be exact. The Bible says that she has made men and women drunk with their false teachings. Their minds have been altered. They can't think clearly. They don't have a sound mind. And notice that she is not only called a harlot, but a mother of harlots. Mother of harlots. Evidently, her daughters, for she is a mother of harlots, are instruments in Satan's hands. Due to belief systems that are not found in the Bible, and the Bible only, but rather on tradition and unbiblical assumptions and carefully crafted counterfeits that are believed to be the genuine article. Did you know that in Paul's writings, there is a phrase that he uses time and time again. Paul says or, or uses the term sound doctrine. Sound doctrine. Sound doctrine, simply put, are beliefs are biblically sound. They, they, they have that ring that's in tune with the totality of God's word. It's sound. It's good. And on the flip side, he warned about false doctrines and teachings that are not sound doctrines. And the contents of that cup, back to that golden cup that's full of abominations and lies, the contents of that cup have been consumed, causing one to be in a state of drunkenness or lacking a sound mind. And when one does not have a sound mind, they're susceptible to believing a lie. And we see it. Even in our day, the seventh day, declared holy by God himself, before the entrance of sin, was forgotten and replaced by a medieval tradition. 
Remember the, the southern Indian monkey trap. It's not easy to let go. The living person created by God who alone has immortality was prematurely transformed into an, a being who inherently has immortality whether they're saved or not. It's not easy to let go. God, who is love and promises to, to do away with pain and sorrow and death and grief for good, is then described as an all-powerful deity who tortures his creation in flames of fire, who cry out in agony for a million years and then resets the time for another million years. And generations have believed this. It's not easy to let go. God's moral law, the Ten Commandments, have been deemed obsolete, at least nine of the ten, but enough to say that the whole law has expired. Again, it's not easy to let go. And Satan, he's not enraged with the mother of harlots. In fact, he welcomes her to sit on his lap. Um, he's not enraged against her. Why would he be? She's the mother of even more harlots. He is not enraged with her daughters. No, he's not. Jesus himself said, if Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. He's not, not going to shoot himself in the foot. He's not going go, to go against his allies, those who would, would work for his purposes. No. Jesus then continues, how then shall his kingdom stand? Well, in the end of time, it's one or the other. That's why there's only two women described in the book of Revelation. There's not three or multiple women. This is not something to say, whoa, there's so many options. What do I do now? No, there's only two. Only two. And in end time scenarios, there's only two classes of people. When Jesus returns, there's only going to be two. Some will be running out to the mountains, fall on us and hide us. From the wrath of the Lamb. But others will be looking up towards heaven. Rejoicing that Jesus is finally here. There's only two. And in the end time, it's one or the other. One is decked with jewelry in Revelation 17. While the other radiates with natural beauty or light. In Revelation chapter 12. And truly, when we take a look... At, this, at these word pictures, it's truly a tale of two women. The fallen church stands in contrast to the triumphant church. There's only two. The false church stands in contrast to the true church. The apostate church stands in contrast to the remnant church. The church which is full of abominations stands in contrast to the church which is full of the Holy Spirit. There's only two, again, in the end time scenarios. It's one or the other. You can't have it both ways. Can a circle, it's an example, can a circle have a 90 degree corner? Well, can it? Well, no. No, it can't because if it did, it would cease to be a circle. Can one bite into a honeydew melon and taste a durian? Some of you are saying, God forbid. Well, no, the answer is no, because it would cease to be a honeydew melon. You get the idea. So can God's true church, the remnant of Bible prophecy, as clearly presented in Revelation, can God's true church, as depicted in vision to John, teach false doctrines well no because if it did it would cease to be God's true church this is God's wife it's his bride can God's bride can God's true church teach false doctrines and deceive many no because if it did it would cease to be God's bride, the true church. Precisely why Satan 
hates those who keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus. Now, are we saying that the church is infallible? No, we're not. But we can say with confidence that the God of the church, he never fails. The God of the church, he is infallible. And guess what? He has a church who proclaims his teachings. He has a church ordained by God himself with the commission, with the mission to proclaim a message that nobody else is preaching, preparing a people for his return. Again, precisely why Satan is enraged with a very particular, specific body, group of people. Indeed, after the Dark Ages, as we looked at part one in this series, after 1798, God would raise a church that keeps the commandments of God, preaches and exalts Jesus, waits patiently for his return, and is led by the spirit of prophecy. The church on earth would be a people called to prepare the way for the return of the king of kings. The church was never established to be a social institution where people assemble to feel good about themselves, to have a a better self-esteem about themselves. No, that's not the objective The church is not some organization built on human tradition or practices. No. According to the Bible, the church is the custodian of, the protector of, the preserver, the proclaimer of Bible truth. That's what the church is. That's what the church is. And in his prayer for unity of the church... This is Jesus' prayer in John 17. Jesus prayed that believers would be united in truth. That was his prayer. Not visible unity. He's talking about an inward transformation that's that's accomplished by, by truth. You see, truth is from the word of God. And the word of God is creative and transformative in power. God's word transforms. So when the word of God, his truth, is received, it changes us within. And God is gathering a people who are transformed within. Not simply agreeing and signing on a dotted line that we'll get along even though we just don't interpret the Bible the same way. But that's okay. Let's have visible unity. Well, there's, there's a problem with that. Because Jesus himself prayed that they would be sanctified by truth. Thy word is truth. That was his prayer, John 17, 17. And what does the word sanctify mean? That word sanctify is a word that is not merely something that results outwardly. It's not just something that you can put on or something you can just start practicing. No, the word sanctified implies a heart transformation of the heart. To be sanctified means to be set apart for the purpose of making them holy. So God says, I'm setting my people apart. I'm speaking the word of God to hearts that are receptive to know and understand. I'll never forget when I was a student missionary in India. I was in the state of Goa in western India. And I was walking along the coast, along the beach. I had completed a year of service as a student missionary with Adventist Frontier Missions. And so I was on a little getaway, a little excursion in the state of Goa. After all, the state of Goa is really interesting because it's a Catholic state in a Hindu world. And you go to Goa, you see all these, all these cathedrals, and, and the majority are actually of a Christian faith. And so I was intrigued by this, this state, and so I went there for a week or so. And as I was there, I was walking along the beach. Now, you have to understand that for an entire year, 
I've been interacting with Hindus, I mean hardcore Hindus, who, who have never even touched a Bible, looked at a Bible, heard about Jesus. And so, and so I've been, it's been an amazing year in, in, in proclaiming the truth about the God of heaven and earth, the creator and Jesus. And, and so I've come out of that experience. And now I'm walking along the beach and I see a man reading a book in the, sh- in the sh- shores there of, of, of the ocean. And as, I'm, as I get, come closer and closer, I can't believe my eyes. Here is uh, an Indian man, for all intents and purposes, you know, uh, either a Christian or a Hindu. And he's sitting there with a Bible. It's like, whoa, this is a sight that I have not seen here in India for, for the whole time I've been here. That was not a sight in northern India that I would ever dream of seeing. And so I, I was like, are you kidding me? I'm not just going to walk by and, and, and just, no. I went up to the man and I sat down next to him right there in the sand. I said, hello, you speak English? Yes, I do. Praise the Lord, I thought. And I said, so you're, you're reading the Bible. Wow, wow, wow what are you studying? <laughs> the story gets better. Are you ready for this? He's like, he says, yeah, 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 yeah. I, I'm, reading, I'm reading Genesis. I'm reading Genesis, he says. I'm reading Genesis. And, and it's there in, in chapter 2, I kid you not. There in chapter 2, he says, it says, then God bless the seventh day. And, and he sanctified it. I'm not going to try to do my Indian accent, but because in it, he rested from all his work, which God created and made. And he's saying, this seventh, this seventh day, it's, it's, it's intriguing. It's intriguing. And I said, yes, it's, 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 it is. We sat down together and had the most fascinating conversation. As I took him through the Gospels, I, I even took him to Revelation. I mean, it was just an amazing study. And the man later shared with me that the study of the Seventh-day Sabbath had been his study for a long time. And I said, who told you? And he said, nobody. I was, just, I was just reading the Bible, and this jumped out at me, and I can't help but to take note and to study. You know, believe me, if it's happening in one pers- with one person among uh, several million in the country of India... You better believe, you better believe that's happening even in our community. Yogi, my sister Yogi, called me some months ago, left a message in my voicemail on my cell phone, and saying, um, sir, you don't know me, but I'd like to meet you. I'm looking for somebody to talk to, because in my church, they preach the pre-tribulation secret rapture, and I've been studying the Bible on my own, and I've been studying, and I just don't see it in the Bible. It's just not there. And I looked it up. I looked up Seventh-day Adventists, what they believe. And oh, I noticed that you don't believe that either. So we got to talk. And so, and so I was like, praise God from whom all blessings flow. And I called her up. She didn't answer. That was a Friday. And I said, oh, and by the way, yeah, I'd love to meet with you. Oh, by the way, there is a service tomorrow. That was a Friday. Tomorrow we're going to have a service here at 11 o'clock. And, um, and you're welcome to come. I had never met her before. When I came to church that next day, here at Living Hope, I was sitting right over there with Heidi, and, um, and Pastor Holland was preaching, and I was sitting there with Heidi, and, and I, I'm trying not to get distracted from the sermon, but I, I, I'm looking, I'm glancing. Who looks like a yogi? See, who looks like a yogi? Uh, she might look like a yogi. She might be a yogi. I'm trying to guess who it is. And then I saw someone sitting in the second row, second row right there. And it was someone I had never seen before, and she was like... I mean, she was nodding in affirmation to what she was hearing throughout the entire sermon. I said, I am almost convinced that's Yogi. That has to be Yogi. I caught up with her afterwards. And guess what, folks? She hasn't missed a Sabbath since. In fact, is Yogi here today? I'm not sure if she's here. Well, this is the first time she misses. Yeah. <laughs> so, so Yogi, my sister Yogi, who loves the Lord with all her heart, was led by the Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God is moving in hearts throughout the world. And he's moving in hearts 
in our neighbors, across the street, in the heart of co-workers, people that are looking up towards heaven, saying, God, there must be something more. And they're just waiting for somebody to show up with the little Hope in Troubled Times booklet and say, i got hope to share with you. It's from the Word of God, a God who loves to reveal Himself, and a God who has led me to share this with you. Only waiting for that divine appointment. That divine appointment. God is on the move. God is on the move. And he's setting people apart. God is saying, I'm calling Bible-believing Christians. Allow the Spirit of God to to commit their hearts to bring them to the truth. He's calling non or rather Bible-believing Christians to be set apart by the truth of this word. He's calling men and women who were once Christians and have drifted away. He's calling them back to truth. He's calling them to truth, a truth that is clear, a truth that is powerful. We are in the time of the end right now. Do you believe that? We're in the time of the end. The return of Christ will be the end of time. But right now, we're in the time of the end. And it's time to get serious with our God. He has a church. He calls it His bride. A people who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. And John, the Gospel of John tells us that the sheep, the the sheep know the voice of the shepherd. They follow him because they know his voice. And we must be well acquainted with the voice of God, his word. And it takes discipline in the world of heavy distractions to learn that voice, the sound of that voice. takes discipline. The followers of the Lamb spend precious quality time in the Bible, not CNN or Newsmax. The followers of the Bible spend time seeking His face in His book. Not on Facebook. That to be searching Him. The followers of the Bible spend time, of the Lamb spend time with Jesus. They're called pure and faithful. Not the name of distinct political parties. The followers of the Lamb are red and yellow, black and white. They're all precious in His sight. They're the ones who will be on the Lamb's side at the end of time. Who are they? Who are they? I call them the survivors of the great controversy because they endure a very troubling time. But as we saw, the God of Revelation is a strong tower in which we can find refuge, a very present help in troubled times. Who are these people? Who are the ones that stand with the Lamb? The answer is found as we come to our final verse in Revelation chapter 17. Look at verse 14. Who are these people? Who are the ones who will be on the Lamb's side at the end of time? The answer is found right there, verse 14. These will make war with the Lamb. And the Lamb will overcome them. For He is Lord of lords and King of kings. And those who are with Him, those who are with the Lamb, those who are on His side, those who follow the Lamb, they're called, chosen, and faithful. Who are they that are with the Lamb? The called, the chosen, the faithful, otherwise known as the survivors of the great controversy. God is calling you to make a decision for truth. And He has not left you alone. Never has and never will. God will lead you. God will empower you. God will encourage you. God will strengthen you. You can let Him do all this in your life and more. He has given us everything we need to be survivors of the great controversy. Everything we need is promised to us. 
Everything we need for life and godliness. And he who endures to the end will be saved and stand among the survivors of the great controversy. We must be about our Father's business because there is not much time left. And our enemy, he knows that he has a short time. And when you know you have a short time, you prioritize. You only do the things that matter most. And the enemy's doing what matters most to him, and that is to steal, kill, and destroy. And he's relentless. No vacation, no day off, no break, no sleep. He's all out. And as a church, we're the target of his hatred. But the good news is that the Lamb is on our side. And the Lamb wins. And you and I, you and I, can just take this to heart and say, if not now, when? If not now, when? And if not us, who? If not us, who? Today, I want to recognize that I'm going somewhere. I know where I'm going because I've not forgotten where I came from. I remember the Sabbath day that Creator God fearfully and wonderfully made me. So I know where I came from and so therefore I know where I'm going. You know where I'm going? I'm marching to Zion. That is my final destination. That's where I'm going. I'm marching to Zion. You want to march with me? It's your choice. God is calling everyone. Everyone. No exception here. Everyone's being called. But as you respond today and reaffirm your response, God is declaring you the chosen one. He's called many, but few are chosen. Will you respond today? How many of you today want to say, by the grace of Jesus Christ and the power he has promised me, I choose, I choose Christ. I choose to stand with the Lamb, for the Lamb wins. And I choose to be anointed with the fire of the Holy Spirit to be his instrument for glory in these last days. If that is your choice, would you stand together with me as we march to Zion? Is that your choice? Praise God. Praise God. For those who are viewing online, you're with us. You're with us. Let's march to Zion together. Let's pray, Father in heaven, we're marching to Zion. If we would just be still and listen, in the stillness of the day of the morning as we spend time with you, I believe that we would least listen, we would hear the sound of the beat of the march, the cadence of the saints, the people of God who follow the Lamb, marching, 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 May we hear that sound. And may we never lose sight of Jesus, the central focus of revelation, the central focus that we pray for right here, right now, to have both now in this moment of consecration and commitment, but also, Lord, on the daily, on the regular, day by day, moment by moment, knowing that we don't have much time, focusing on what truly matters the most, and that is to set our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, and to point others to Jesus, to behold the Lamb of God. May that be, Lord, our sense of calling, both now and until the day when we're ushered into the new Jerusalem,
having put off every abomination and every lie, cleansed by the blood of the Lamb, and welcomed in through the gates into the new Jerusalem to sit at the feet of the Lamb and worship Him forevermore. Keep us faithful, Lord, until that end. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.